Head on over to James uh, chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 8 through uh, 13. Again, James 2, 8 through 13. When you get there, would you please stand so we can honor the written word together. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, which is love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sins and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Verse 11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not, so if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So reads God's holy and inerrant word. You may be seated. It's a powerful verse, isn't it? We're going to certainly camp on that in a little bit. Hey, I want you to imagine just for a moment, if you can get there, uh, imagine uh, going to a Mexican restaurant and you sit down and the server gives you chips but never brings the salsa. Or they say, we don't have salsa today, we're out. Hey, imagine in that same restaurant you order taquitos and there's no guacamole, right? That's not good. That would make no sense because we all know that those food groups go together. That's the pairing, right? The same would be true for faith and action. Those go together. The theme of James, the theme of the book of James, remember, we're in James. We're reading a letter. We're reading a letter written by James. The theme of James is real faith or genuine faith produces something. It produces fruit in our lives. Faith and action go together. They are part and parcel. Faith without works is dead. Okay, so we see that theme running through the entire book of James. We have learned so far through our verse-by-verse uh, uh, teaching of, this, of, of, of the book of James, this exposition, that a genuine faith is not partial to the color of one's skin. You know, we just don't, we don't have that in the church. We're not to have that in the church. If we choose each other based upon skin, then indeed it is sin, right? We're not to have that in the church. We learn that. A genuine faith will not extend favoritism based on the merits of man, you know, one's position or their influence, how much money they make. A genuine faith will not treat a wealthy man uh, a, a more valuable than someone that doesn't have means or someone that is poor, that don't have money. Okay? So a genuine faith does what pleases God. So favoritism, as we've learned, without question, is unchristian. Favoritism is unchristian. We learned last week in chapter 2, verse 1, of this book, what did we read? My brothers and sisters, do not, imperative, do not show favoritism. So I, I think we get that. 
but we need to not just get it, we have to apply it and we see it, we've got to call it out. So James continues with that same pattern in the verses before us this morning. This pattern, this teaching, this, there's tests of faith going on. How do you know if you're truly a believer? How does one know if it's an authentic faith or it's true religion? Well, we're going to be tested by certain things. And one of the ways we can identify if we're a true believer, it's pure religion, is we're not going to show favoritism. That's not to happen. And other tests were given to us in chapter 1. So, this pattern is being looked at. So let's examine verses uh, 8 and 9. Again, verse 8. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law, remember the audience is the church, if you church, and we could say it for Lakeshore, if you Lakeshore fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But now he contrasts that in the very next verse, which is verse 9. If, however, you show favoritism, there's that word again, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James says, are you church, are you people of God, Lakeshore, your pastor included, are you loving your neighbor as yourself? That's a question. It's one of the questions being posed in our text this morning. If that's the case, if you are doing that, you are doing well. In other words, if you do this, this is good. You know, keep going. But I want you to notice a key word in verse 8. Again, the word, indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the Scripture. That's the word I want you to see. Scripture. Scripture is the word. James is taking his audience, taking the people that he's speaking into back to Leviticus 19.18 where it says, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's taking them back to something they're familiar with. This is the golden rule, right? Many of you would say it's the golden rule. This is the royal law. This is the supreme law of God. It is called the royal law because it refers to the love command, the supreme command. Now it's not to say that all the commands aren't important. They all are important. I mean, all the law is unimportant. Uh, but this is certainly, one, many would say, the supreme command. In other words, we are to care for others, is what it's saying. Uh, this is what that law would mean. We are to care for others as we care for ourselves. We have to be willing to be on mission together, willing to share our possessions, to do life with one another, right? We're to love our neighbor. I love this verse in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. This is the way the church should be. And you know, I see a lot of this at Lakeshore, so I praise God for that. Again, this is the verse I think would be just so beautiful if the Lord would speak this over us, that this is you. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become so dear to us. That we don't just share the gospel, we share our lives. That our life is the gospel. We, we live that out with one another. But brothers and sisters, what's, being, what's on display here, it, it's, it's hardly a new thing. We see it in the book of James here. We've gone back to Leviticus. It's hardly a new thing. It goes all the way back to Moses. They had generations. Generations of people have been working through 
this verse or working through this law for a long, long time. Now James is asking the question, yeah, how's that going for you, church? How's that going for you, John, Jennifer? How's that going? And James is saying, I want to examine how this loving your neighbor in your ministry context, where you live, in the church, your surrounding areas, how is that going for you? In other words, I want to see if your faith, the faith in which you believe, is leading to action. Is that you? Verse 9 says, If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is not a minor thing. This is not something we say, well, you know, it's, it's just one thing. Imagine if a person stood in front of a, stood in front of a judge, standing in a courthouse, Riverside Courthouse, and they stood in front of the judge, and they were standing in front of the judge because they stole a car. And they said, you know, listen, I do, I stole the car, but hey, at least I didn't lie. The judge wouldn't say, well, you know, since you didn't lie, that kind of makes sense, so therefore we'll just throw the fine out, right? No, you know, you're guilty of breaking all, all of them, obviously, right? So he's saying you're, you're, you're a transgressor. You, you, you've sinned. Church, don't, don't, don't minimize this. Don't just act like everybody does it type of a thing. Obviously, this has been happening in the church. We've addressed that last week. Favoritism is being addressed because it needs to be addressed so we saw last week in james 2 3 and 4 the specific example of what happens when a wealthy man was coming into a church and he was he had his gold rings on it was obvious that he had some means and the church treated him differently they put him in the front row they they, they and then the person didn't have any means, they said, you know, just go stand over there. That person was just kind of tolerated, but the wealthy was celebrated, okay? So he's saying, look, you know, you're, you're guilty of, of breaking this law. You're, you're guilty, and it even says here that you are convicted by Scripture. It says you're convicted by the law, I'm sorry. You're convicted by the law, and he's saying you must repent of it. So again, this is significant, and we have to grab this part before we get to the part I really want to drill down on because it's the, it's the crux of what the underbelly of all of this. So James appears to, after saying this, he appears to be piling on a bit. And maybe that wouldn't be the word that you would use, but I think the words start to get a little harsher as we continue. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Not like that was easy. But he says, listen, for whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty. Guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a law breaker. So what is James doing? James is now taking the congregation, the church, through the law, the Ten Commandments. He's using the Ten Commandments. He's using the law. The, the law is clearly on display here. So I want us to consider Galatians 3.24. It should be on the screen. It says this about the law. Again, the purpose of the law. The purpose of the Ten Commandments. Uh, wherefore, the law, the Ten Commandments, was our schoolmaster 
to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So this is one of the purposes of the law, of the commandments. What about this? Again, speaking to the same thing, the same idea, Romans 3.19 says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut, and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But you see the purpose of the law, that the law shuts the mouth of, to the self-righteous or the prideful. You know, if you ask anybody in America today, are you a good person? They all say yes. And they are good when they compare themselves with other people that aren't as good as them, right? But the law shuts the mouth. It says, no, you are guilty. You're a lawbreaker. If you break just one of the, of the commandments, you're guilty of breaking them all. James is reminding his audience that every single person in the church, now and later, right? Everybody is guilty of breaking one of the commandments because there's only one perfect person. And it ain't anybody in that church, right? And it ain't us. As a matter of fact, Romans 3.23 says this, For all, all have fallen short of the glory of of God. The key word there would be all. All have fallen short of the glory of God. The glorious standard. What's God's standard? It's perfection. It's perfection, right? So we fall short of this glorious standard. The commandments shut our mouth. The commandments, we go through them, we realize we've broken them, and we fall short of the glory of God. In other words, what this verse is teaching us is you and I are accountable to God. Favoritism or any other sin makes us accountable or liable and ultimately guilty in God's court of law. So we see some legalese happening here when we look at the law and the totality of some of the Scriptures that would surround the law. So, he's saying, church, you're liable. You've broken God's law. When you stand in front of Him, you're guilty. You see, to break, break, to break one law, it would be like breaking one link on a ten-link link chain. If you break one link on a ten-link chain, it's no, it's no good, right? It's just not going to work, right? It's, it's just basically useless, right? And that's kind of the idea that the chain has been broken. So, if we're reading this correctly, he's saying to his audience, we are guilty. Church, we're guilty. He's saying, church, we have broken God's law. He's saying, church, we, we deserve judgment. So James is taking all of us to school by this text. I wonder why he has to do it. I wonder why he's, he's got to go back to the basics. Why is why he's got to take this church back to Leviticus. Why is he dropping the hammer? Well, he's giving them the bad news. He's letting them know of their sinful condition. 
He's reminding them, for those that are saved, who they, who they, what they once were. And for those that are not saved, he's telling you who you are, right? But I want to really work through that a little bit more deep in a few moments here. He's reminding us that all are guilty, all fall short. We deserve judgment. So, if all have sinned, and all fall short, and all are dead men walking, and judgment is near, there's a verdict coming by a just judge, a righteous judge, and that verdict is soon to be rendered, and God is the judge, and if they're guilty, then they've got a problem. Okay, so we see how the law works itself out here. But as we, as we consider that, we also need to consider that God is a righteous judge, a holy judge. He's without sin. We need to consider that. That He can't even be in the presence of sin. That we need to be made clean. We need a Savior. So you and I will one day stand in front of this just judge. He's going to render a verdict. And this is how it goes down on the day of judgment. He's going to render a verdict, and it's going to be life or death, or it's going to be heaven or hell, right? That's going to be the verdict. There's no in-between. There's no purgatory. It's just, it's heaven or hell. Did you live for me? Did you repent of your sins and place your faith in me? Is there evidence of your salvation? If you love me, you'll do what I tell you to do, right? But as we deal with the severity of the bad news, because there's a lot of heaviness here, James says, it's almost like James would say this, wait, there's, there's more to this. There's more to this. Wait, there's more to all of this. He has good news. There's hope in the verses before us this morning. There's lots of hope. So let's look at the hope in verses 12 and 13. Speak and act. This refers to hearing and doing. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Brothers and sisters, that is phenomenal news. I mean, the whole story shifts. The words there at the end were, mercy triumphs over judgment. That we have been declared righteous, that we're in right standing before God because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus' wrath has satisfied, I mean, the wrath of God falls on Jesus. Jesus satisfies that wrath. The wrath that you and I deserve falls upon Jesus. The debt that we owed fell upon Jesus. You see, our sin made you and I guilty before this just judge. Our sin made us enemies of God. But Jesus reconciles us. He rescues us. So that's good news. But notice the good news is only for the believer, not the unbeliever. It's for the believer, not the unbeliever. I want to also take you to Romans 5, 9-11. through It says this, How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by His blood, will, will we be saved through Him from wrath? 
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by His life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Reconciled is the word, right? Three times we see that in this text. We've been saved, we've been reconciled, we've been ransomed because of the perfect work of Jesus Christ. So indeed, mercy has triumphed over judgment just like the verse teaches us. God has extended mercy to the believer by way of Jesus, that He was the rescue package. He was the, the Savior of the world. Christmas is coming. Emmanuel, God with us, right? Jesus reconciles, He ransoms us. Now in verse 13, it must be understood in its proper context, which is important, James is speaking to believers. James is warning the believers that if you have received mercy and yet you fail to extend that same mercy to others, you are not in a right relationship with God. Now, we're not talking about losing one's salvation, but Christian sin. I'm sure you know that, right? So, obviously, if we're not extending are Christian, or we are a Christian, we're in violation. This is not good, okay? So we have to understand the proper context of what is going on here in, in, in the verse. This text is saying you can tell who has received mercy. You can tell who's received mercy from God the way that they extend that same mercy to others, right? That, that's how you know. That, that's how you know, are you really getting it? Do, do you actually grab uh, the verses? And obviously there's a problem uh, in this particular church. So again, verse 12, if we look at it, it says, it, it says speak and act. You see that? Speak and act. In other words, we're talking about your words, your conduct. Our words that we use as we're talking about mercy, talking about judgment, the way that we handle others, our words matter. Our words are to be motivated by our personal, our love of God. That's how our, our, our words are to be motivated, by our love for God. They're to be measured, and those same words are to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, the, the Holy Spirit of God. Like, we got to think about who it is that we represent. So we're to love God, and we love God. We're motivated by our love, love for God, done in the power of the Spirit of God, and we do it for the glory of God. If we're thinking about those types of things, the way that we speak to one another is going to be different. Rather than not thinking that way, not thinking biblically, then we just kind of say what's ever on our mind and then we get ourselves into some messes. Amen? So our speech, our words, our conduct, however it is that we communicate, our words matter. Our words, our conduct, it depicts the spiritual condition of one's heart aren't always doing great we, we've talked about that sometimes christians get to be get a bit edgy cranky we know that's not what god would have for us but we do but when we get cranky and edgy it it it, it says something it, it tells us the condition of our heart but i want to do something 
I want to bring all of this down to uh, street level, and I really want to make this practical because the teaching is very practical. But I think the questions that I'm going to pose before you are going to be helpful. I forgot which author I got this from, but actually Paul Tripp. Here's the four questions. Consider them. Why is it that judgment and condemnation seem to be a more natural response to those who irritate us? So I'm asking you, I'm in this with you. Let me read that again. Why is it that judgment and condemnation seem to be a more natural response to those who irritate us? Second question. Why is it that Charlie Moulton, put your name in there, why is it that we are so impatient with what we deem the lack of spiritual progress in others? How about this one? Why is it that you and I are quick to write off a person from our fellowship when they struggle as the weaker brother often Why is it that we fail to give others mercy, the same mercy that was extended to us? Why do we do that? Why do human beings do some of these things? I would say that the answer to these questions is very humbling. We don't always respond to others as our Savior responded to us because we don't share His heart. Our hearts are not always ruled by what ruled His heart. That's not what governs us. We find ourselves in some of these ditches of life. Our hearts get polluted. Our lives are not always motivated by what motivated His heart. We don't always find joy in the very things that brought Him joy. But aren't we to be like Him? So we lack the mercy that drove and shaped the life of Christ. We don't have that many times. We have access to it. Those that are Christian have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. But we need to make war against those things that trip us up. So our hearts are not always ruled by what rules His heart. We're not always motivated by what motivates Christ. We don't always find joy in the things that brought Him joy. I would say it this way, our selfish hearts oftentimes are actually more committed to our kingdom purposes. Our hearts are more inclined to what we want. It's, it's more inclined towards our preferences. It's more inclined towards our preferences than they are to Him. In the church sometimes we flex our liberties and sometimes we flex our sin, and sometimes we justify both when our hearts are not aligned with His. And that's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous. I shared with you a few weeks ago that sometimes we can do God's will and not do it His way. The way we speak and the way we act, our conduct matters. It matters. You see, when we have conflict, and everybody has conflict, when there's difficulties, when there's strife, when there's strife with others, you'll notice something, a pattern in your own life, certainly in mine, that one of the first things to get laid by the wayside is mercy towards others. 
We just want them to have the law, right? What our kid angers us or disappoints us, or a boss um, discourages us, or a, a, a wife, husband. You know, we, we mercy goes by the by, by the wayside. We no longer have mercy for our brother. And this failure to show mercy, it demonstrates just how sinful man is before conversion and after conversion. Why do we do these things? Why, how is it that someone that has been blood-bought, someone who knows the Gospel, that knows what Christ did with them, why is it that there's still times in our lives where we just do not want to extend mercy to people? And James is saying, yeah, we're here now. And it's killing us. We're not united. We need to have this conversation. This can't happen here. There's no room for favoritism. We must be a people who praise God, that elevate God, that live out our faith and our action and the way we conduct ourselves with one another will say a lot about the maturity and who we are in Christ. But for those that are not in Christ, there's no hope but the Holy Spirit that dwells within the believer gives us the power to overcome our sin. But the question is, do we see it as sin or do we justify it? One of the areas that I see in this church that I would speak to is our opinion or definition of liberty. We have a liberty. You know, I've got a liberty. You know, the Bible says don't get drunk. I've got liberty to just to drink. And, and it's like, but there's no regard for people that might struggle with uh, alcohol or something like that. Or, you know, it's like, well, I just do what I want to do and I'm not hurting anybody. We don't think about others, we think about ourselves. So I don't think it's a sin to drink. I don't drink. But we use liberty very, very loosely. You know, I know I post this on social media. I know it's offensive to everybody in the universe. But doggone it, they're going to get saved. Okay. Um, if you think that's bringing unity to the body, I don't see it that way, but that's what you think, and you want to go into the liberty card, knock yourself out. But if we were to look at the Scripture, and we were to think about this, and we see the unity, we see the Gospel, we see the mercy extended to us, and we see that another brother or sister, I'm not talking about unbelievers, we see another brother and sister that we need to raise up and be patient with. Should we be patient? Or do we just throw the book at them? The law is a schoolmaster. It shows us our sin, but the Lord doesn't keep us there. He gives us hope. Hope. Be careful with liberty. Be careful on social media. Be careful how you conduct yourself in this church. Look, at This is a good thing that you can consider with social media. Notice I talk about social media all the time because we need to in this church. Take a look at what you're posting and ask yourself, is this bringing glory to God is this helping? Is it divisive? Is my brothers and sisters responding? Brothers and sisters, are they responding? They understand? Because sometimes we're just misunderstood. Have you ever, anybody been married? Just put your hand up. Have you ever loved somebody and then like your wife or husband or friend was like just totally offended by what you said? And you're like, what? I did it to Louise. Like, what? You know what you did. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I could pass a lie detector test. I don't know what you're talking about. 
So we could literally feel like we're, we're, we're innocent. But that doesn't make us innocent. Does that make sense? Like, I believe I'm innocent. But that doesn't make you innocent. How about we just take a look at how we handle our conduct and our speech, our words matter, and just say, I'm willing to lose this one for the sake of gaining or winning my brother. Yeah, how about that? That's good. That's helpful. That's helpful. So why is it we fail to give others mercy? The same thing that Christ gave us. So brothers and sisters, conflict can be avoided when we check our hearts and we check our sinful condition, we check our pride at the foot of a bloodstained cross. Our failure to show mercy demonstrates just how sinful we are at times. But the Lord says, repent, come back. He'll forgive you. He'll separate your sin as far as the east is from the west. We can repent of this. And we can again begin to start dispensing mercy to our brothers. I'm reminded of something I think would be helpful, and that would be the story of Joseph and his brothers. Remember Joseph, right? I can't get into the whole story, but I'll give you some of it. His brothers are jealous of him. You remember that account? Uh, why were they jealous of him? Because the father, Joseph's father, he, he, he gave him this garment. He, he gave him this garment, these clothes. He wore the garment of favoritism. His father loved Joseph outside the bounds of the very commandment that we read this morning. The brothers are jealous of their brother, their little brother. They're totally jealous of him. And by the way, jealousy is a trait of a godless man or woman. Did you know that? Jealousy is a trait of a godless godlessness. It doesn't mean you're godless if you get jealous. It means you need to repent of it. But it's a trait. So we see that they're jealous. This jealousy led to a calloused heart. Their hearts were not just calloused. Their hearts became hardened. Talk about about his brothers. And and it got so bad, their hearts got so corrupted, there's no mercy here, that they actually had no problem killing their own kin, their own brother. That's how wicked they got. However, they figured, why would we even, why would we kill him? We can actually make money off of him. So they sold their brother into slavery. I mean, how hard does your heart have to be? I mean, I can't even do it to a puppy. It's a human being. So they sell their brother into slavery. And Joseph, if you know the story, Joseph finds his way in power. He, he moves up the ranks. He becomes the number two man of the kingdom. And he comes face to face. Again, think about mercy and judgment. He comes face to face with those who did him wrong. His own brothers. They don't even recognize him anymore. It's been years. But they did this to Joseph. When he came face to face with his brothers, when he had the power to avenge all the wrongdoings, You want to know what Joseph did? I'll read you scripture. There's lots that he did, but I'll read you some. Genesis 43, 30. Joseph, when he saw his brother, he hurried out because Joseph was overcome with emotion for his brother. And he was about to weep. And he went into the inner room and he wept there. You know the story. You know that Joseph forgave his brothers. Joseph extended mercy to a people who did not deserve 
mercy. You ever wonder why it took so long? I wonder how many days that, that he wrestled with that. I wonder if he ever thought, I'm going to get them back. I wonder how many years it took before he finally gave that all to God. You see, compassion and love is the fruit of a transformed man or woman of God. Grace and mercy is actually who you are. You see, when you're redeemed, when you're saved, your inner nature is going to reflect grace and mercy. It's who you are. It's what you do. It's the fruit that comes out of you. And only God can change a heart this way. Only God can do that. Some people will do it this way. You know, I've got a lot of baggage. This happened to me when I was young, and that happened, and these are all things that are real. And they don't come to Christ first. They go to the world first. They try this first, and that first, and this first. And God is saying, come to me, all ye who are weary. Come to me, all you who are broken. Come to me. I'm going to give you rest. Come to me. The power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within the believer gives us the ability to make war against those things and yet we are still less than perfect, not because of the Holy Spirit, because of our sinful nature. The gospel is our only hope. So grace and mercy is what we do. It's our inner nature. When we fail to show mercy, it's rebellion. It's rebellion against God. It's rebellion against our fellow man. Yet repentance is and always has led to mercy how do i go from where i'm feeling now i don't want to extend any mercy to anybody how do i get there well number one you got to be saved but you got to repent say god i recognize through the word of god this is not right this is not what you want from me so we repent and repentance leads to mercy jesus said these words in matthew 5 7 3 blessed are the merciful. Let me just read that again. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. This is the heart of Jesus. He's saying, I want my people, I want Christians, I want the church to be merciful because I am merciful. The attributes of God, merciful. He says, be merciful. Mercy is what God has given to us. And now God says, go and extend that same mercy. Mercy given to us. And He says, now go and dispense that same mercy I gave you. All of it. The same way in which I was patient with you, you be patient. The same way in which I forgave you, you, you do that. That's what, I, that's what I want from you. You know, Jesus takes this everything to a whole nother level. You see, we read, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, um, why don't we do this? Um, I want you to love your enemy. I want you to do that. 
I want you to lay your life down in such a way that there's going to be times where you're going to be laying your life down and you're going to be put into situations and hang out with people you don't want to hang out with or get stuck with that crazy uncle for a little longer than what you wanted to. But understand this, that when you're ministering and you're showing mercy and you're showing grace to the person that's annoying you, you're showing honor to me. Have you ever wanted someone to show you honor? I don't like that little smart aleck kid. He didn't show me any honor. We don't say it like that, but a little sarcastic little brat. But isn't it true? But we think it, right? But we want honor to us. And God is saying, let me show you you can show honor to me. Obey me. Love the weaker brother. Love not even your brother, even your enemy. You know, when the writings of the Apostle Paul are compared to the writing of James that we see here, it is said that Paul seems to deal with everything at the root level. Paul deals with the root. And it's been said, and I would agree, that James deals with the fruit. James deals with the fruit. It's true. So if that is in view, let us consider what Paul said. I'm almost done here in Ephesians 2, 1-5. Again, as Paul deals with the, the root, our heart. And you were dead in your trespasses. Ephesians 2, 1, 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses. That means that you were dead. That's what that means. And in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously, previously, previously lived amongst them in our fleshly desires carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts and we were by nature children under wrath as because as others were also so look what it says we were by nature children under his wrath as others were also judgment we were under his wrath the full wrath of god But God, this is the good news. Remember, bad news and good news again. See the pattern. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love that He had for us. Verse 5. He made us. Not you did this. He made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses and sins. You are saved by grace. You can't earn it. Does that mean if we can't earn it, there's nothing we can do, no matter how much money we have? Does that mean that we can't throw a couple extra bucks in the, in, in the offering? Does that mean we can't serve a little bit more and make up? No, no, no. You can't earn it. This salvation is by grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. We deserve judgment, but mercy. Mercy. I would suspect, in a room of this size, some of you are failing to extend mercy to somebody. And if you are in Christ, not only is it sin, 
but it's going to hinder your walk. Your personal relationship with Jesus Christ will be hindered. You've got to put that off and put on Christ. You see, if God said, I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, and He gives you that mercy, and then you say, yeah, but the sin that was committed against me is so egregious, what you're saying is, is the blood of Christ was not sufficient for whomever it is. That, that would mean that there's sin out there, people have harmed you in such, a fan, in, in such a way where there's no way God will cover that. Well, I'll tell you this. Anytime man uncovers his sin and goes before God, it's called repentance, to say, I am guilty. God will cover his sin by the blood of the Lamb. But anytime we go in and we say, you know what? I know I should, but it's just really hard. We're, we're, what we're doing is we're covering it up and God will cover. God will uncover us. And we're the ones with the issue. We're the ones. And it's not the heart that God would have for us. We have a new heart with new desires to please Him. Does that make sense? I want to read this to you. The story took place in London. What a great preacher, a very fine young man by the name of Caesar Milan. He was invited one evening to a very large and prominent home where a choice musical was to be presented. On the program was a young lady who thrilled the audience with her singing and her playing. When she finished, this young preacher, he threaded his way through the crowd which was gathered around her. When he finally came to her and he had her attention, he said, young lady, when you were singing, I sat there and thought how tremendously the cause of Christ would have benefited if you would dedicate yourself and your talents to the Lord. But, he added, you are just as much a sinner as the worst drunkard in the street or any harlot on the, on the scarlet street. But I am glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, will cleanse you from all sin if you will come to him in a very haughty matter, manner, in a very haughty manner, she turned her head aside to him, and she said these words: "You are very insulting, sir." And she started to walk away, and he said, "Lady, I didn't mean any offense by what I said, but I do pray that the Spirit of God will convict you." Well. They all went home, and that night this young woman could not sleep. At 2 o'clock in the morning, she knelt at the bedside of her bed, and she took Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. She repented of her sins. And then she, Charlotte Elliott, sat down and wrote the following hymn, Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. Listen to the words. And that thou biddest me to come, O Lamb of God, I come. I know some of you know it. Just as I am, and waiting not, to rid my soul of one dark blot. To thee whose blood can cleanse each spot, O Lamb of God, I come. Final stanza. Just as I am, thou wilt receive. Wilt, be, wilt, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. So brothers and sisters, 
She came just as she was. Sinful. She would have stood in front of God on that day of judgment had she not repented and placed her faith in Jesus and spent eternity in hell. But by the grace and the mercy of God, she repented, placed her faith in Christ, and she's in glory. So I ask you that same question. Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Do you know where you'll spend eternity? Are you sure? If you're not, it's a conversation that will be the most important conversation of your life. Don't leave here today without having that conversation with myself or somebody. I'd love the opportunity to talk to you about it, spend time with you, grab lunch with you. But if you do know Christ, I would ask you, are you showing mercy? And if you're not, today, repent and show mercy. And let's be the people we've been called to be. Last verse. The next day, this is John 1.29. The next day, John, he saw Jesus coming towards him. How precious is this? And John said to him, he said to Jesus, here is the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world. Mercy. He is merciful. That's who He is. And God says that I'll give you a new heart with new desires. And you can also be merciful. He'll help you. But the first thing we need to do is repent. And He'll give us that heart. And we can finish the race that God's given to us. Amen?